0: Welcome to Bottom Line's Top Dollars. A podcast about
1: all the money things you suspect might be ruining your life.
0: I'm Laura Boo, recording from the city of Charlottetown, which is on the island of Ibegwicht, unceded Mi'kma'l land, otherwise known as Prince Edward Island, Canada.
1: And I'm Hadassah Damian, stateside in Brooklyn, New York, on unceded Lenape land.
0: Together, we are the Ladies Who Crunch, longtime friends, artists, and researchers who have both somehow made careers for ourselves in finance.
1: And in this episode today, we're going to explore debt cancellation movements and motivations. How are debt activists pushing us to reconceptualize debt in our world? But before we go systematic, let's go personal. Laura, at, you know, at your punkest, How did you relate to debt? What was happening for you?
0: I was one of those punks who fell into that camp of totally dropping out to avoid debt. You know, like I thought debt was a trap. I was frightened of it and I avoided it at all costs. And I think that that for me came out of seeing debt really screw my parents in the 80s and the 90s. Like my parents, yeah, my parents did not have a good relationship with debt. It didn't work out for them. So I was one of those people who was like, no way, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. How about you?
1: Yeah, I really relate to that very similarly. I was like, I had this my idea in mind that like I should be buying things I could pay for and I shouldn't be buying things that I didn't have the cash on hand to pay for. And I had very little cash on hand, so that was not buying a lot of things. And I did take out student loans to go to undergrad um, because I went to school in Canada. Um, So I had less loans than most people, but I still had student loans. But when I finished school, I didn't have any, like literally any way to barely feed myself, let alone also pay back on my student loans. So I went into default on them. And so then I kind of transitioned into this, like, catch me if you can, like you can't find me, so you can't get me, (laughs) Um, which was a bit of an illusion because it meant that the student loan people were like calling my family calling my mom they were harassing other people because they couldn't catch me which was gnarly and it just gave me this like deep mistrust and like deep aversion to financial systems that only increased over time right so I was like avoid spending money I don't have except for this one time I had to spend money I didn't have and look how bad it went and that was to me like a self-fulfilling prophecy and and you know for a lot of my friends who like either didn't go to college or like just went to community college and like finished or didn't finish but like had student loans that that, that were getting them stuck I Think for a lot of people, it was like student loans were this really place you could get trapped. And in my punkest, I was just starting to like crawl out of feeling trapped by student loans.
0: The way that I was able to completely circumvent debt was, in some ways, a very privileged thing that I was able to do. I did get a a university education, and I didn't have to incur debt because schooling in Canada, not just in Canada, the province where I was educated is the cheapest province in the whole country to get educated, which is Quebec. So my education was in expensive relative to what other people in North America pay and that was one of the major ways that I avoided it so there's a lot of privilege there about where I was but the other side of it was a lot of my friends from you know high school they engaged with debt in a way to do things like start businesses or buy their own homes or things like that and debt frightened me and so when I say that I was choosing the dropout lifestyle was saying I never need to own property I'm not going to start my own business like I was like making conscious conscious choices to not engage with debt and i knew that that was giving up certain possibilities by choosing to avoid debt i was also therefore choosing not to do certain things like like starting my own business or trying to own my own home i guess in my mind these three categories of of folks that i knew within kind of punk communities and how they dealt with debt you know mine was like i'm totally avoiding it i'm going to go to extreme lengths of like dialing out of certain options in order to not have to incur debt. Yours was the the nihilism of like, I went into debt and now just catch me if you can. I'm going to avoid these debtors, avoid these phone calls. I knew people who like, if the collections agencies found out where they were living and they got a collections phone call, they would just move to a different punk house. Uh-huh
1: catch me if you can yeah yeah
0: I think the the third one category that I see and that is actually now really gaining big momentum is kind of the activist way of looking at it which was the tear down option which is seeing debt as part of an overarching system of exploitation that needed to be abolished and this I think was very connected to the the occupy anti-capitalist history of punk activism what we want to talk about today is this move which right now is really having a very big moment in our world. I have been reading the book that just came out from the Debt Collective called Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. Debt Collective is this American activist group that is really shaking things up. And at the same time, I'm, I've been spending my winter in a reading group where there's a, a bunch of us who have gotten together and every two weeks over Zoom, we we read a little bit more and talk about David Graeber's Debt, The First 5,000 Years, which is an epic book. This is kind of where I'm at and why I'm so excited about this episode because this is like the winter where I'm trying to understand debt.
1: I haven't chunked my way through debt the first five thousand years, though so I've read pieces of it. And I'm also with you. I'm I'm reading through can't pay, won't pay, and I'm excited to dig into our conversation today. And in in particular, one framework we were thinking about was that there's there's this bifurcation in experiences around debt. So there's how rich individuals or corporations are insulated to experiences of debt, not that they don't use debt, but there's a whole different, they're insulated to negative experiences around debt is perhaps how we should frame it, right? There's, that's one way rich people, corporations are engaging with debt, but it, are not having negative experiences, even if they're declaring bankruptcy or everyday people in particular, people who don't have economic resources. So now we're talking, of course, about folks who experience marginalization in all the ways who are engaging with debt in these punk frameworks, right? Like either struggling through or are in alt lifestyle, I avoid it, nihilism, catch me if you can, or activism. Um, But most people are struggling through or feeling really stuck and not sure how they can struggle through that's really interesting to me right this idea that like in my view of the world everyone thinks debt is bad and that it sucks that it's a trap right and like you know oh like avoid bankruptcy and like if you have to use payday loans it's not good but you gotta do what you gotta do like most everyone i know most everyone i know like thinks about debt as like a thing you kind of have to do and for some people it's like hold your nose and do it and for some people there's a like well this is how i like get ahead kind of hero narrative but it's like you're just trying to get by or like Improve your situation. Like you're, it. You, that's that's how people are engaging with debt. And in the U.S., for example, this is fascinating. The average debt per person, not including mortgages, is twenty nine thousand dollars as of the end of twenty nineteen. And of course, that's un, unequally distributed. So there's like this one experience of debt which is just so heavy, like consumer debt in the US is 14.5 trillion if we include mortgages, about four and a half trillion dollars if we don't. And so that's like credit card debt, auto loans. Additionally, student debt is another one point seven trillion dollars. And so we've got this these just huge volumes of money. That everyday people owe, whether it's for trying to hold on to like the basics or trying to get ahead in small ways by just, oh, I don't know, having an education or having a home.
0: I feel like this is a data point that maybe will be a bit shocking to you. But, you know, when you say the average American holds $29,000 of debt, according to Equifax, and this is a number from September 2020, so it's quite recent, the average Canadian owes. $73,000 $73,000 in debt. But that might and include
1: mortgages, yeah?
0: It does. Oh. And this is the thing that I'm going to say about it, is that in Canada, the debt situation is slightly different. I feel like in the United States, people hold an ungodly amount of debt related to education and medical care, which are two things that in Canada is not, I mean, medical debt, I'm not going to say that it doesn't exist. It does. It does. Like we do have socialized medicine in Canada, but dental care is not covered. And I know lots of people who have gone into debt to fix their teeth. Mm there and there are there's some types of medical care in Canada that you can't get sometimes decisions get made and if you want to go a different way you have to end up paying for it out of pocket like that does exist in Canada but it is much less common than in the United States because the basics like if I broke my arm it would not ruin me right all different The other side is education. Education in Canada is costly. It is nowhere near what it costs in the United States. And we are more lenient about debt forgiveness for student loans. But... Canada is experiencing one of the most severe housing bubbles in the world right now. And so the the average mortgage for a Canadian is astronomical. And so the fact that Canadians carry more debt on average than Americans, it is because our cost of housing in Canada is bonkers compared to what it is in the United States. If housing costs that much, then People end up in situations where they start relying on credit cards. Credit card debt in Canada, I think, is the next most. After mortgages, it's
1: credit cards. Fascinating. I mean, for us, our revolving debt, credit cards, is just under a billion right now. It went down over COVID. 13% of credit card debt got paid off in the U.S. during COVID times. Mortgages went up $1 Frankly, we have a housing bubble happening here as well, right? And it was a lot of people writing or refinancing mortgages. So that's like part of why that number increased so much in that time period. There's a lot of money owed. And it's all in this, like, again, in this one experience of like, I'm just trying to hold on, slash, I'm just trying to have like what might be considered a everyday or middle class life, like somewhere between I'm just trying to eat <laughs> and I'm just trying to have a house. We're not talking necessarily about like the yacht crew, <laughs> we're talking about pe- norms around spending, right? And norms around feeling either stuck in debt or experiences of not having enough income, right? It's it, it or having enough income and deciding to use debt anyway because you're able to access it to get a mortgage. But this is all one really big nuanced <laughs> we're you know package it. We're not giving all the nuance a way of thinking about debt. But there's this other way of thinking about debt that certainly in my punkest years, I had no idea existed, which is a like wealthy business way of thinking about debt, which is much more like it has a whole other word, which is leverage, <laughs> right? And the whole purpose of leverage is using somebody else's money to make yourself more rich. The idea is like, well, if I can borrow it from the bank for cheaper, then yeah, <laughs> use their money, use the bank's money. Um, and so businesses borrowing to start up while business owners are able to like keep their own money to themselves means they're keeping their capital liquid for themselves and they're using some other money to get their business going or to expand their business and therefore make more money. Or it is investing, look, thinking about property investments as a way to borrow someone else's money money to have someone else pay it off to make yourself money, right? It's, it's, a, it's still debt, but it is thought about and approached in a really different way. And often the impacts and the intensity around it are very different because now it's not your personal decision to borrow. It is your business decision to leverage. And those get treated moralistically very differently. The thing
0: that is really frightening about this very different experience of debt, where you have the rich and or corporate world using leverage, to enrich themselves even more and taking on quantities of debt that are astronomical. People taking on hundreds of millions of dollars of debt versus this debt experience by the you know middle class all the way down to poorest folks. The poorest are in a situation where more and more they need to use forms of micro-debt to just get by or to try to ameliorate your honestly shit situation. And this is a very big shift where in the age of my grandparents and you know I spend a lot of time right now because of the pandemic hanging out with my elders like I'm kind of in a bubble right now where most people are around the age 70 and talk a lot about their experience of the world and the experience of their parents Like, they never had debt. My grandparents on my mother's side, they never owned a home. They lived in a trailer park. You know, they owned their trailer, but they didn't own the land that it was on. You know, when they were kicked off that land, they became renters of an apartment. They didn't have credit cards. Credit cards is a relatively new thing as far as everybody having them. These forms of highly available debt, this movement towards making debt way more accessible to people and for smaller and smaller things like credit cards, payday loans. So, that you have people who are using debt to even just get to next week for food, for lodging, for things like that, making terrible choices between heat and food, using debt to manage those decisions. That is a very different experience of debt than someone who is out there borrowing a billion dollars. Anything that you ever read about debt, people go back to this very famous saying, which is, you know, if you owe the bank $100,000, the bank owns you, but if you owe the bank $100 million, you own the bank. Folks who use debt at this level of the ultra-wealthy are using it with power, and those who are using it to just get by are in a precarious situation. That's
1: exactly what it is.
0: The thing that is truly revolutionary that these activist groups are, are, are moving towards and what the debt collective is, their kind of radical proposition is that they're a, a union of debtors where they say, look, alone, we each owe the bank $100,000. But together, we owe the bank a billion dollars. So together, we do own the bank. And that is their leverage. And that's the very interesting thing about current debt activism that is blowing my mind.
1: It's so interesting. It makes me think about the Berthold Brecht quote, which is like to paraphrase um, if you want to make a lot of money, don't rob a bank, start one. (laughs) You know, because like what's the seat of the power? And so it is so upending on the assumption that like financial institutions are places inherently where money can be made if you have power to take this concept of leverage and apply it where it's not usually applied to consumer debt, right? Again, it's usually applied in this business way, coming from a place of power to reframe consumer debt, understanding the sort of like economics of it is super crucial creative, right? And it's not something that when we thought back to like the different punk frameworks that we were doing, right? Like what we were doing, again, we were dropping out, we were catch me if you can. We were individualized on our resistance. But what's happening now is a collectivization of the resistance. And that's where you get this idea of economic disobedience, which I think is really interesting.
0: Like that can't pay, won't pay thing. Like to say that you refuse to pay your debts has always been thought of as morally abhorrent.
1: Yeah, let's get into the moral stuff around here because I think it's really interesting. Like I was reading, I was getting caught up on my... Um, my biblical, my scripture, um, just to try to understand. <laughs> thank you,
0: Hadassah, for bringing in the, the scripture. Bring it on. I'm oh, ready. Oh, Lord.
1: Um, <laughs> but, and I was I was reading a Christian Bankruptcies attorney's website. So thank you um, to that person for summarizing. But essentially, the idea is that, like, there's, of course, a deep amount of moralization around debt that comes down through Judeo-Christian cultural writings. But there's two sides to it. One of the sides is you should only take out a debt that you intend to pay. And if you take out a debt you don't intend to pay, that's immoral. But the vice versa side is you should be fair in your dealings if you are a money lender. And that's where we get this concept of usury, which is lending at too high a rate or in unfair or immoral conditions. I'm no you know, theological person, nor do I necessarily think that the Bible has great ideas. I think it's pretty contradictory and people apply it hypocritically. So for for the record... But it's interesting when we look back at this whole idea of like, where did debt get so moralistic, we can look back to Judeo-Christian values and, and see people only focus on the first one. It's moral to pay back your debts and forget about the other part, which is it's immoral to charge people so much or put people into situations where they can't pay and then still force them to pay
0: this idea of a immoral or predatory lending Mm -hmm. system and this is also one of the bases of the this movement for debt cancellation the debts that we're talking about in many ways are illegitimate debts and illegitimate debts should not be paid. They should be cancelled. What are they talking about here? They're talking about an entire economic system where people are being forced into extremely precarious life situations because of a lack of a social safety net, because of the privatization of things that many see as human rights, like medical care or education also creating working situations where people are not earning enough to live. Workers' power is so weak because of union busting, and the minimum wage is so low because of political campaigning from powerful groups, i.e. mostly corporate interests.
1: Right, to not re-index it, right.
0: It's put individuals into a situation where they have to access this debt. And then this debt system is one that has been constructed within a framework of deregulation of of lending laws so that Mm. you're lending to people in situations where the interest rates are too high, the terms are too shitty, and those terms are obscured from people's view so that you have people borrowing money where they may or may not know what they're going to have to pay back. Then, on top of it, there's a deconstruction of bankruptcy laws. Like, bankruptcy laws have been changed significantly within the last 50 years so that there isn't even a mechanism for relief. Part of the morality of lending, one of the bases of that is that there is this Relief valve known as bankruptcy. That if you get yourself into a bad enough situation, that there is a mechanism within capitalism to relieve that called bankruptcy. But right now, the same way that there's two experiences of debt for the rich and poor, there are two experiences of bankruptcy for the rich and poor as well. Very different laws apply.
1: It's like it's different laws apply, but it's also different norms apply. Like back to this moralizing if you're a poor working class or even like middle class person you decide to clear bankruptcy it's a moral failing right like you have to go through some credit counseling like often you'll have to take a little class where they tell you how you weren't supposed to do that da 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 you know there's like all these forms you have to fill out that are like basically just trying to reinforce like do you really want to do this you're not supposed to do this you're supposed to pay back your debts like it is reinforcing to you over and over the moral wrong that you're committing and it's also expensive to apply for bankruptcy which is a horrible joke <laughs> If you don't have money, right? So we love humiliating poor people for being poor. We just love love to like rub it in people's faces like that. It was some sort of personal failing here. Yeah. Meanwhile, for like a business to decide that a business owner to decide that their business is failing, they can declare business bankruptcy if it's a corp. Like, you know, the trustees of the corp have to like file some paperwork. But the individual owner or owners keep all their personal assets. That's completely divorced from anything having to do with the business. And it's seen as like, well, it's a business decision. It's not moralized right? It's not a personal failure. You might, if you decided to declare a business bankruptcy, wish your business had succeeded, but that's different than you are a bad person for not paying back these loans.
0: Absolutely. Bankruptcy for the rich is very often corporate bankruptcy. Exactly. The thing that I find interesting is that the ultra-rich, their personal finances are corporate finances because they are usually personally incorporated in many ways. So that if you're talking about the ultra-rich borrowing sphere, You have somebody like Trump taking on huge loans for projects and then Trump can say that he didn't declare bankruptcy, that it was a numbered company.inc that declared bankruptcy and therefore it doesn't touch him. The more money you have to construct and manipulate the system, the more that you can get away with these things. You know, I think about 2008. In 2008, there were these huge bailouts and they primarily bailed out Wall Street in essence. Wall Street did super dangerous stuff created, in essence, a debt that was so massive that it was going to destroy the entire economy and they were bailed out. And in the same situation, the forgiveness that happened there, the debt cancellation that occurred there was not extended to the average individual who lost their houses.
1: Yeah, it wasn't moralized in the same way. Again, it was a business decision for the country. It wasn't a social decision for the country. Very different, but it's still debt. It's so fascinating, right? And so it's like we have all these different historical moments where we can look back and see how debt for certain types of entities in positions of power is treated differently. And we can see it even now, right? With the, like the COVID impacts and stimulus that have happened, even though it's convenient and people act like debt is ahistorical. For example, I heard or I read that the, the Financial Times um, had this concept of a, what they called a stealth debt jubilee. And so like if you want to dig into history and think and learn about what a debt jubilee is, it's this idea that if, on the 10th day of every year here, the trumpet is blown and like debts are forgiven and people are let out of bondage. So it's like a, a reset that happens not that infrequently, to be honest. You, you can also tie that today to the fact that your credit score resets every seven years, tied directly to that time period. But anyway, those are overt things that happen. This concept of a stealth debt jubilee applied primarily to businesses, but a little bit to individuals who were more economically well off in the sense that companies could potentially, and we can imagine many did, decide to trade more expensive debt for cheaper COVID relief loans and debt that were being made available, especially for businesses in the forms of loans, somewhat in in the form of grants. And if your business really was negatively impacted and you spent your money on a grant, you'll get forgiveness on that. But otherwise it converts into a loan. But for a lot of businesses, there's these cheap loans that came out. A lot of people were saying, well, should I get the cheap money, (laughs) right? And put it towards my business debt, which will save me money on the other debt that I had, or let me make some other decisions, which is in some ways a stealth jubilee or as we talked about earlier, a bunch of credit card debt got paid down over the over 2020, 13% of it in the US because a segment of individuals had extra money to put towards these debts, right? So there was this kind of backdoor debt jubilee experience for people who didn't need the money for other things, right? And so we come back to this idea of like the unequal distribution of relief and the unequal distribution of help where it's needed. And so, if we really want to start talking about moral questions, I think we could start bringing in this question of, well, what debts should we be repaying and who should be being supported in relief or forgiveness or otherwise?
0: I I think that this point that you make about the unevenness of both who is most impacted by debt and who is most impacted by the worst kinds of debt and then who is receiving forgiveness for that debt in these situations is very interesting to me it made me think about how during this pandemic the mortgage interest rates have fallen significantly such that a lot of people went in and refinanced their mortgages and actually brought their their debt load down in significant ways we can talk so much about mortgages and I think that there are predatory mortgages out there and I'm not saying that all mortgages are like awesome, but mortgage debt is very, very structurally different than credit card or payday lending or other kinds of personal lending. And the big difference there is collateralized debt
1: versus non-collateralized debt. Ooh, fancy word. What does that mean, Laura, for our listeners and me?
0: When you have a mortgage, you have an asset that guarantees that mortgage, which is essentially saying if you default, we're going to take the house versus a credit card or student loan where there is nothing for them to take. And this is one of the reasons that they use to make student loans exempt from bankruptcy rules. And this is one of the major things that is screwing people so viciously. And in the United States, it's far worse than in Canada. And that is because in Canada, although you cannot declare bankruptcy on student loans within the first seven years after you have graduated there's that magical jubilee number again after the seventh year if you do declare personal bankruptcy you can get relief from student loans but in the united states you absolutely cannot do that student debt is completely exempted and you were telling me this thing that blew my mind right before we were recording about student debt and people being able to pass it on when they die
1: oh yeah okay well only private loans so anybody listening don't don't freak out. But if you have a private <laughs> loan, you know this already. Private student loans are completely horrific, and I, I think that like the conditions and policies under which they operate just defraud people. And private student loans, some of their some of their contracts are written such that after you pass on, that loan becomes the responsibility of your spouse, which is horrific. You know. But the other thing I was thinking is like, look, I could hypothetically get a small business loan and start a business with it, and if that business fails, I could. I I could discharge that debt, but I could also go to school to try to get skills with which to start a business. And if my endeavor fails, too bad for me, I have the debt. Like, are you really necessarily doing two different things? No, but you're doing them from two different positions of power in our society.
0: And there's also a big thing that we can map onto this about racial inequalities, right? When we look at the people who are most impacted by the most predatory forms of lending, they are disproportionately people of color. So that you have this situation where folks who are getting the kind of stealth debt breaks are folks who own homes, who are able to refinance those mortgages. That is a benefit that disproportionately benefits primarily white people and then not giving debt relief to other kinds of debt in particular student debt, which statistically people of color carry much, much higher rates of student debt than white folk.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is back to power. Who has a family that can pay for them to go through college? More often, it's more likely to be white students who have that upper middle class family, who have that money available for them, who is going to school and paying for all of it themselves, right? More often, it's going to be black and brown students whose families don't have wealth to help them with. Food, housing, books, not just tuition. Tuition has gone up, you know, it's doubled over the last 10 years. Food, housing, all of that stuff, books have gone up 68%. And it's also just getting more and more expensive. So the costs are rising asymptotically.
0: Oh, I love when you use words <sighs> like I Just I
1: love math <laughs> words. <laughs> but so what are people doing? There's a couple other levers that can be pulled. And I think can't pay, won't pay talks about a great success story with one of them. Will you, will you go into it, Laura? Are we talking about Iceland? Oh, you could talk about Iceland. I was thinking, <laughs> well, but what I stood out to me recently is like the work that the debt collective did or a debt collective did to get together students who had gone to one of these like- Oh,
0: Corinthian. Yeah, You're private for-profit Indian.
1: colleges. And so again, we go back to the site, this moralizing idea of you should only take out debt you intend to pay, but you shouldn't put people into debt for illegitimate purposes. And so there's all these private colleges who just were basically student loan collecting machines that didn't really have the intention of giving students useful or usable educations. They were just like, oh, here's a way we can get lots of money, real easy, (laughs) student loans and VA loans. So over the last couple of years, legislation has come through the federal government such that if you were defrauded by going to one of these schools, you could apply to have your debts canceled. Hundreds to thousands of people made these applications, but the horrible billionaire Betsy DeVos, she refused to let her apartment department sign off on any of these cancellations until all these people got together en masse, wrote a civil suit, <laughs> like got a lawyer, and delivered first several hundred and then several thousand of these applications to the, the Department of Education of the federal government. You know, all the evidence is there that these people have been defrauded. And while people were forced to wait for years to find out about their decision, ultimately they did have these loans forgiven, right? So one lever that can be pulled is in the instance that you have gone to a school that was actually, again, back to this moralizing, like that they were in the wrong by saying they were a school, it's one avenue to get student loans forgiven. It's a small population who qualifies for that, but... But it was a proof point. Yeah.
0: You can use it as the starting point to say, if cancellation was appropriate here, it's a smaller step to get to the next level of cancellation.
1: Totally. And this is, I just looked it up, it's called borrower defense. You can apply for borrower defense. And the other thing that it focuses us on is this idea of a legitimate debt versus an illegitimate debt and an illegitimate source of a debt. As a society, again, we need to come back and ask these questions, like how legitimate is debt that people couldn't avoid versus debt that people were more choicefully able to get into? I'm a business. I'm trying to like take out a business loan to expand. I'm in a position of power and choice. I'm a 17 year old. My family has no money. I keep being told everywhere. And it's pretty clear that the my only way forward and out is to get a college education. How much choice do I have about that student loan? Or the fact that you guys don't have socialized medicine. Oh, lol. Yeah. Let us, let us not forget. <laughs> Would you like to put that cancer payment on credit card is in can't pay, won't pay? I mean, like, is that a choice Really? Yeah. No.
0: This this idea of if there is an illegitimate debt, why should you have to pay them? And this question of saying, is a debt legitimate, is such a fascinating idea for me because it's no longer putting the onus on the debtor saying that you are in moral default for having gotten yourself into debt. And therefore, there is no way in which you can be ever forgiven because there is this imperative that, of course, you have to pay your debts Taking out debt and then not paying it back is like verging on sinful for us as far as popular morality and popular concepts of how to be a good person in modern society is that of course you have to pay your debts. But to take a step back and say, was the debt moral? Is the debt legit? And if the debt itself is illegitimate, then the moral thing to do is actually resist it. So to say something like I was put into a situation where I had to choose between going in debt and dying, that debt is illegitimate is what they're saying. So I really like that the Debt Collective talks about the phony morality around debt, and that one of the fundamental things that their movement wants to do is call into question the mythology of the good debtor, the person who takes debt to make their life better, choosing to use debt to do something optional in their life. That's the good debtor. That myth obscures and covers up a system of predatory lending that survives because of draconian and inequitable bankruptcy laws that lets corporations take fucked up risks without consequences while regular people are, in essence, intergenerationally punished for trying to either survive abject poverty, get out of abject poverty, If you look at me and say that the the debtor movement, the debt cancellation movement, I couldn't possibly understand how they would have a a moral or ethical leg to stand on. That is their ethical and moral leg
1: right there. Absolutely. We could just like really go deep on exploring like precisely what is the ethics around choice when it relates to debt and i think it could be very interesting but i think that there are certain things that are very clear the example that you gave right if my only option is go into debt or die uh that's not a choice and we I think especially in the way that our economic system is set up especially for people who don't come from resourced backgrounds is that what we end up in is what I think of as situational choices so sure technically you or I could have chosen not to go to college we had a choice could have chosen not to go to school and got an undergraduate degree and then I never would have had student debt and I never would have defaulted on it but it was pretty clear to me that that was my way up and out and like when I went to go back to school to go to grad school I didn't even think about it until literally someone in my family died and I got $11,000. And I was like, oh, wow, this is my one chance (laughs) to get to do this thing. That's an up and out decision. But like, again, when people are having to depend on death to make choices or be making life or death choices, we're in this like very situational moment. We're not just like, oh, should I get the yacht or the second car? Like, come on. <laughs> the good debtor, I believe, is a myth because once you're in the position of being in the good debtor, you're on the side of like power and true choice. So you're on, you're you're playing in the leverage field at that point. And therefore, you, it's a different game.
0: It's so interesting to me because my Reading this 500-paid academic treatise on debt by David Graeber, he talks about the way in which we understand debt as this natural thing that evolved as part of the exchange economy. There is this narrative that says that the way that debt is structured is the obvious and only way. He goes to great lengths to talk about how debt didn't always function like that. He says, you know, society is our debts to one another, almost kind of saying that debt, in a way, is like Like the connective tissue that holds us together as a group. And I found that really interesting because I don't want to say that all debt is to be vilified because there is purpose to debt. Debt, in a way, is human beings helping each other out. Like we give each other things to make our societies and our communities function. And we often either don't expect them to be paid back or we expect things to kind of come back around to us in that way. You know, like if I loan you a cup of sugar, do I expect you a week later to come back? to me with a cup and a quarter of sugar to pay me back. He kind of says, you know, this idea that not repaying your debts is the biggest moral failing. David Graeber says repaying your debts in full is actually ways of severing connections between people. And I find it really, really interesting to say this thing that you think is so natural in the background and that there's no other way to organize it, like debt, it is actually a total
1: construction. And we can definitely do things a different way. I mean, two things that come to mind. One is that, like, the point of indebtedness isn't actually only about money you owe some faceless corporation, but indebtedness is actually part of that social interconnectedness, like is what I've always understood about Graeber's work to be like some of the most beautiful and generative part of what he's trying to get across in that book. And it makes me think about this book, The Gift by Lewis Hyde, who also kind of talks about this idea where if we're not focused on economic exchange as like the only value relationship we can have, we can think about exchange as like a way that we're just with each other or gifts that we give each other as a way of, of community and network bond building you know it's not like lesbian sex it's not like you do me i do you <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> it's like you can just you could just go one way you know it doesn't have to be like that <laughs> but but the other thing right is that like you can also start to get creative about how debt forgiveness could be structured like you were about to tell a story about iceland that i think our listeners would love to hear
0: well i just really loved this thing where in the book they talk about 2008 and how it kind of went down in North America and then they contrast it to how things went in Iceland and I'm going to actually read directly from the book where it says, meanwhile in Iceland where the situation was even worse, they took a radically different approach. Instead of bailing out the banks, Iceland put the bankers in jail. They also implemented a jubilee, a form of mass debt cancellation and required principal corrections to bring down the price of mortgages so they were closer to the real value of homes. result was a speedy economic turnaround. And this I find super interesting. And it kind of gets to the next piece, which is you cannot just have a movement that cancels a debt and does nothing else. So you can't just restart the meter and put the meter to zero and then just let the meter start ticking up again because it does nothing. All it does is release the pressure on the valve and then close the valve back up and let the pressure
1: rebuild. We'll forgive your chemotherapy payments on your credit card this time, but next time time you're you're going to have to pay them. Yeah, exactly. It
0: it does nothing. (laughs) And what I find really interesting is they're saying debt cancellation needs. To take place in a larger framework where you rebuild and in many places create social safety nets like Medicare for All, free public higher education, etc., so that the meter doesn't start ticking up again. Iceland was like, we are gonna have this bailout relating to mortgages, but what we have to do is actually reset the principal amount because the bubble has burst. And this is the big fear in Canada. People are petrified because they have $800,000 mortgages for their Toronto one bedroom. And they're petrified that the bubble will burst and the government is not gonna let the bubble burst because they're like, we can't leave people with mortgages paying off $800,000 of debt on a home that is now only worth $400,000. It'll ruin them forever. And this was like a, a flash to me where I'm like, it needs to happen alongside a radical reset of people Principles that they owe. And it had never occurred to me before because I hadn't heard about this, even though it happened in 2008. And it blew my mind. And it shows the debt cancellation movement fits into the larger movement for social change and economic justice. It's not saying, hey, everybody, we bought all this stuff and now we don't want to pay it back. It's saying there is a larger change that needs to happen. And for those things to be able to happen, all these people who have been screwed by the system so far, they need to have that wiped
1: away. It goes to the difference between relief, which is a, a band-aid, right? And like reparative rebuilding, which is the actual social change that's needed. And to me, that's one of the most interesting differences in the can't pay, won't pay is collective effort and the you know, no future nihilism punk approaches that I was familiar with, which was an individualized effort or a very small group of people dropping out that wasn't going to get the social change, the belief being, you know, no future, no point. I much prefer <laughs> the way that like the Debt Collective is approaching this from a reparative, deeply understanding that the change needed isn't just going to be a one-time bankruptcy, but it's going to be a combination of deep social reform Reforms, reparations, and a true change in how healthcare and education are delivered. It gives us a lot to think about so excited to get to talk about it and think through this with you, Laura. Any final thoughts?
0: Just to say that I also love how in this book they contrast illegitimate debts to what they call legitimate debts that people don't recognize. You know, stealing land from indigenous folks upon which North America was built and then building it with slave labor and then connect it back to saying, you know, we shouldn't have to pay these illegitimate debts. What we should be doing with our money is paying these legitimate debts that no one wants to talk about. And to me, that that connects this podcast to our reparations podcast so if you're a new listener go back and listen to that one and that's and that's it that's all i got for today this has been another episode of bottom lines top dollars a podcast made by queer punks and anti-capitalist finance professionals who like you don't
1: trust money (laughs) and are therefore obsessed with understanding it your hosts are the ladies who crunch that's me laura boo And me, Hadassah Damian, from Ride Free Fearless Money. Folks, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and review us on whatever podcast app you use. And, speaking of money, if you are able, throw us a few bucks at patreon.com slash bottomlinestopdollars. Funds from our Patreon
0: will pay for the costs of making and distributing this podcast, and if we grow this project big enough for the cost of getting help to make this.
1: I love help and I love getting to pay for it. But other free things you can do is support us by following us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for Bottom Lines Top Dollars or Ladies Who Crunch. We also have a website where we publish show notes on our blog at ladieswhocrunch.club. Finally, if you have questions to submit for our end of season listener mail episode or feedback for us, or if you just have your own punk money stories to share, you can email us at bottomlines.com topdollars at gmail.com or just find us on one of the social media platforms and message us there. We'd like to thank our listeners and friends
0: who have contributed to this show and especially to our researchers and idea sounding boards, Ariel
1: Federo and Handy Levine. And remember friends, punk's not dead, but capitalism still sucks. And if what you heard in this podcast sounded familiar, you're not alone. Thanks for listening.